So Numbers chapter 11, starting verse 1. And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled. And the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. Then the people cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire died down. So the name of that place was called Taborah, because the, Lord, uh, the fire of the Lord burned among them. Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving. And the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up, and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. Now the manna was like coriander seed, and its appearance like that of bdellium. The people went about and gathered it and ground it in hand mills or beat it in mortars and boiled it in pots and made cakes of it. And the taste of it was like the taste of cakes baked with oil. When the dew fell upon the camp in the night, the manna fell with it. Moses heard the people weeping throughout their clans, everyone at the door of his tent, and the anger of the Lord blazed hotly, and Moses was displeased. Moses said to the Lord, Why have you dealt ill with your servant, and why have I not found favor in your sight, that you lay the burden of all this people on me? Did I conceive all this people? Did I give them birth that you should say to me, Carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries a nursing child to the land that you swore to give to their fathers? Where am I to get meat to give to all this people? For they weep before me and say, Give us meat that we may eat. I'm not able to carry all this people alone. The burden is too heavy for me. If you will treat me like this, kill me at once. If I find favor in your sight, that I may not see my wretchedness. Then the Lord said to Moses, Gather for me seventy men of the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the elders of the people and officers over them, and bring them to the tent of meeting, and let them take their stand there with you. And I will come down and talk with you there, and I will take some of the spirit that is on you and put it on them. And they shall bear the burden of the people with you, so that you may not bear it yourself alone. And say to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow you shall eat meat. For you have wept in the hearing of the Lord, saying, Who will give us meat to eat? For it was better for us in Egypt. Therefore the Lord will give you meat, and you shall eat. You shall not eat just one day, or two days, or five days, or ten days, or twenty days, but a whole month, until it comes out of your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you, because you have rejected the Lord who is among you, and have wept before him, saying, Why did we come out of Egypt? But Moses said, The people among whom I am... Uh, I am number 600,000 on foot, and you have said, I will give them meat, that you, they may eat a whole month. Shall flocks and herds be slaughtered for them and be enough for them? Or shall all the fish of the sea be gathered together for them and be enough for them? And the Lord said to Moses, Is the Lord's hand shortened? Now you shall see whether my word will come true for you or not. So Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord, and he gathered 70 men of the elders of the people, placed them around the tent. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him and took some of the spirit that was on him and put it on the 70 elders. And as soon as the spirit rested on them, they prophesied, but they did not continue doing it. Now two men remained in the camp, one named Eldad and the other named Medad, and the spirit rested on them. They were among those registered, but they had not gone out to the tent, and so they prophesied in the camp. And the young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the assistant of Moses from his youth, said, my Lord Moses stopped them, but Moses said to him, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. And Moses and the elders of Israel returned to the camp. Then a wind from the Lord sprang up, and it brought quail from the sea, and let them fall beside the camp about a day's journey on this side and a day's journey on the other side, around the camp and about two cubits above the ground. And the people rose all that day and all night and all the next day and gathered the quail. 
Those who gathered least gathered ten homers, and they spread them out for themselves all around the camp. While the meat was yet between their feet, teeth, before it was consumed, the anger of the Lord was kindled against the people. And the Lord struck down the people with a very great plague. Therefore, the name of that place was called Kibroth Hatavah, because there they buried the people who had the craving. From Kibroth Hatavah, the people journeyed to Hazareth, and they remained at Hazareth. Well, uh, I think we live in a complaining culture. And while sometimes complaining can be appropriate, sometimes we need to kind of express our concerns in a respectful way to uh, maybe have something constructive happen, I think we sometimes take this a little bit too far. Complaining is something that's been happening for ages, for centuries, basically since the beginning of human history. Now, apart from the record of complaints in the Bible. The first record of a complaint goes way back to 1750 BC. There was a man named Nani, and Nani ordered some copper from a man named A. Nasir. And he wrote this tablet to A. Nasir that he was not satisfied with his purchase. First of all, the copper, he said, wasn't the best quality, the quality that was advertised. Second, the servant, or the Anisar had kind of delayed and misdirected the shipment so that the shipment was late. And finally, Anisir had been rude to the servants of Nani when the servants of Nani went to pick up uh, this, this copper. Sounds a little bit familiar, right? I mean, it's been happening for centuries, for ages, basically since the dawn of human history. Sometimes complaints can be kind of humorous downright silly. Anyone here ever worked in customer service? You've probably heard some pretty silly, humorous complaints, things that just kind of make you scratch your head. Uh, Well, a few years ago, there's a news website that took uh, different um, complaints that people had compiled from hotels, uh, from travel agents, online travel companies, and they put some of the most interesting and humorous ones together. So I'll read some of them for you. First complaint, we had to line up outside to catch the boat, and there was no air conditioning. Second complaint, it's your duty as a tour operator to advise us of noisy or unruly guests before we travel. Third complaint, no one told us there would be fish in the water. The children were scared. Fourth, we booked an excursion to a water park, but no one told us we had to bring our own swimsuits and towels. We assumed it would be included in the price. Next complaint. Although the brochure said there was a fully equipped kitchen, there was no egg slicer in the drawers. Next complaint. The roads were uneven and bumpy, so we could not even read the local guidebook during the bus ride to the resort. Because of this, we were unaware of many things that would have made our holiday more fun. Next complaint. I was bitten by a mosquito. The brochure did not mention mosquitoes. Next complaint. We found the sand was not like the sand in the brochure. Your brochure shows the sand as white, but it was more yellow. Next complaint. I'm sure I've stayed in this hotel room in a previous life. I cannot stay here again. The final one, my favorite. My fiancé and I booked a twin-bedded room, but we were placed in a double-bedded room. We now hold you responsible for the fact that I find myself pregnant. This would not have happened if you had put us in the room that we booked. Sometimes complaints can be downright silly and humorous. Other times complaints can be really 
harmful. Complaining can be really harmful. What I found interesting is I was kind of, as I was preparing the message, I was trying to find kind of an illustration or a story to illustrate how complaining can be harmful or deadly. And as I was searching, I searched for a long time. I couldn't really find a good story. And what was interesting is almost always everything I found, it kind of portrayed complaining in a positive light. I mean, almost every story, it's like the person complained and this happened. Or this is their complaint. This is their objection. This is what they're bringing forward. And so that, to me, that kind of illustrates the point that we live in this complaining culture where complaining is always seen as something positive. And yet the Bible shows that complaining can be very costly, even deadly. Now, the people of Israel, again, are on the journey to the promised land. The book of Numbers describes the journey of Israel from Mount Sinai into the promised land. And as Israel is kind of preparing to leave, God gave them all these specific requirements and uh, specific instructions for what they're going to do. And before they leave, uh, during this time of preparation, they're semi-obedient to do the things that God calls them to do. And yet, as soon as they get out the gate, as soon as they leave and start experiencing some opposition, some difficulty, they start complaining. When I was growing up, uh, my dad is a really good planner, and he's really great at planning vacations and activities and things like that. And so I was blessed growing up. I have a lot of memories of going to different places and doing some really special things because he was such a great planner. But there's one time when he kind of missed it. And uh, we, he told us about how we were going to go camping and how it was going to be so much fun. And uh, we go there, and it was basically a parking lot. We were just kind of camping in this, on this asphalt parking lot. Wasn't really a lot to do. And, and I feel bad kind of looking back. I, was, I think I might have been a teenager at that point. And so what did I do? I, I, let, him, I let him hear it. Like, why did you bring us here? What are we supposed to do here? I mean, this is like a parking lot. I mean, how long do we have to stay in this parking lot? And I think that's what's happening here with Israel. They start off the journey, and they're like, why did you bring us here, God? Why, how, how long do we have to stay here? Why, why have you brought us to this place? And there's two questions I think that this passage really deals with. And the first question is the, what I call the question of the lost, and that question is, why should I follow God if God is going to take me fill in the blank? Why would I follow God if God is going to put me through this or that? And so the people of Israel complain. There's two complaints that are recorded. The first complaint uh, is not specific. It just says they were complaining about their misfortunes. We don't know what those misfortunes were. But I think we can all relate to that. We all have different things in our life that are misfortunes, things that we could complain about. Then it says in a text that the rabble that was among them had a strong craving. And we don't know for sure what the rabble is referring to. Uh, it may have referred to some non-Israelites who had kind of been in the camp that had come out from Egypt. We don't know for sure, but there was a group of people who have this strong craving for meat and now they're complaining, and they're complaining not simply about their general misfortune, but they're complaining specifically about the provisions that God has provided. Now remember, the number of the people of Israel is very great during this time, and they're living out in the wilderness. For all intents and purposes, they shouldn't be alive, and yet God provides for them every step of the way. 
Each day they go out and they find this manna. Manna means what is it? We don't know exactly what it looked like. I always thought of kind of like frosted flakes, kind of looking like frosted flakes. But they have this bread that they get every day. They always have everything that they need, never too much, never too little. And they have what they need, and God sustains them. But now they're complaining, or a group of them are complaining about the provision that God has provided. And they say, all we have to look at is this manna. And they say, they kind of think back on the good old days when they were back in Egypt. They're like, we just have this manna to look at. This is all we have to eat. But back in Egypt, freely, there was all of these fish. There was cucumbers. There was melons. There's leeks. There's onions. There was all this stuff. We could have as much as we wanted. And now all we got is this manna. And I think essentially what they're saying is our lives were better before we started following God. They're saying our lives were better when we were in Egypt. Our lives were better when we started, before we started following after God. And I think many people can kind of fall into this trap. People who maybe don't have a relationship with Christ, who are not believers. They fall into this trap of they start doing Christian things. Maybe go to church. Maybe read the Bible a little bit here and there. Maybe say a prayer. Maybe even give. And they start doing these Christian things. And then some trial comes. Some, some difficult circumstance happens in their life, and they're like, wait a minute. I thought I was going to church so that my life would be better. I mean, I thought I was reading the Bible so that things would go well in my life. And when they don't go well, then people who don't have a relationship with Christ, oftentimes they just, you know, check out. It's like, why would I deprive myself of pleasure? Why would I try to avoid sin? Why would I try to do the things that are right if it's going to cost me? If it's going to be more difficult to follow after God than before I followed after God. And I think even as believers, we can kind of get caught up in this temptation. You know, it's we're doing the right things. We're following after God with all of our hearts. We have a relationship with Christ. But then we experience difficulty. And then we look at another person who maybe doesn't follow after God. And it looks like, you know, everything's going well in their life. They have a great job. Their family is healthy. They don't have any, you know, conflicts that we see in their life. And we're like, wait a minute. I thought I was on the right path. Why am I sacrificing? Why am I trying to avoid sin? Why am I doing this if that person who's not following after God is, is, has their life just going just well? This is something that many people have struggled with, even a number of people in the Scriptures. The prophet I, uh, Jeremiah said this. He said, Righteous are you, O Lord, when I complain to you, yet I would plead my case before you. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all who are treacherous live? You plant them and they take root. They grow and produce fruit. You are near in their mouth and far from their hearts. So we have that idea sometimes that we're missing out on something and we feel like someone else who's not following after God has it all going for them. And so we have that temptation to think to ourselves, why am I following after Christ if it's going to lead me to hardship and difficulty? And sometimes in those moments, even as believers, maybe in those moments if we have those doubts, maybe we turn to something to kind of numb the pain or something to try to satisfy our hearts. Maybe we turn to pornography or drugs or drunkenness or a host of other things because we feel like we're missing out on something to follow after Christ. 
But here's the thing about our memories. Our memories are often very selective. Have you ever had a difficult experience in your life? And uh, when you were in that experience, you kind of hated it. You just wanted it to be over. And then time goes by, and then a few years you know, after that, you think back on that event, and suddenly it doesn't seem so bad anymore. I mean, we kind of have a rose-colored glasses where we sometimes view the past. You know, we maybe only remember the good times. You know, I think about, you know, like my time in seminary, and I think about, you know, some you know, relationships that I had, some, you know, really cool experiences working with churches and going to different churches and uh, time with professors. And I think about those things and all these experiences I had in that place, but then I don't think about the negatives. I don't think about all the hard work it was. I don't think about the, the difficulty it was being in a different place. And I, I think we have those, those selective memories sometimes, and that's what's happening here with the Israelites. They say, remember the good old days when we were back in Egypt. We could have all these things that we, as much as we wanted. But what was the reality? They were slaves, and they were treated extremely brutally. Look at what it says in Exodus chapter 1, verses 13 to 14. It says, so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Not only that, Pharaoh is kind of uh, doing this kind of ethnic cleansing among the people. Uh, remember what he told the Hebrew midwives. He says, if there's a son that's born, you're to put the son to death. That's not a good thing. They're killing the descendants of Israel. The book of Exodus describes the Israelites groaning because of the brutality uh, of the Egyptians who were their masters. And yet here they are in the wilderness longing for those good old days, the time when they were slaves, the time when Pharaoh was killing their children, when they're groaning to God. Because they only remember the good times, not the bad times. And what's God's answer to that, the, to the question of unbelief? God's answer is judgment or discipline. The text tells us that the first judgment that comes upon the people when they complain about their misfortune is the fire of God comes upon the camp of the people, burns the outskirts of the camp. Then they cry out to Moses. Moses cries out to God, and God relents of uh, that punishment that was coming upon them. And then what happens? As soon as God relents, they start complaining again, and they start complaining specifically about the food. And then God says, okay, if that's what you want, if you want life like it was back in Egypt, I'm going to give it to you. And so he says, you're going to have so much quail that it's going to come out of your teeth. And so he causes all of these quail, these birds, to come into the camp so much so uh, that it just covers the camp. They have so much meat to eat that it's unbelievable. But then there's going to be a plague that comes among the people. Some scholars suggest that that plague may have been food poisoning. We don't know that for sure, but it may have been. And so God gives them what they want, but he also reminds them that it's going to cost them. He reminds them it wasn't so great when you were back in Egypt. It wasn't so great when you were living life apart from me. Sometimes I think that God does that even for believers. Not in terms of judgment, but in terms of the way that God disciplines us. I've been uh, trying to uh, eat healthier and lose weight for uh, some time now, and it's really 
a struggle because most of the time I would rather eat pizza than a salad. And when I say pizza, I mean like a whole pizza. I'd rather eat like a whole pizza than a salad. And so I've been doing it for some time, trying to eat healthy and, and lose weight and all those things. I've had some success with it. But sometimes I think to myself, I, I kind of liked not thinking about it. Like I kind of liked just eating whatever I wanted and not really caring. And it was kind of more fun. And so sometimes I'll go and do that. I'll have a whole pizza. And then I'm like, I don't feel good. I can't sleep because my stomach hurts. And I'm like, maybe I really don't want to go back. Maybe, I, maybe this isn't really what I want. And I think God sometimes does things like that in our lives. He gives us reminders of the fact that we don't really want to go back. I mean, sometimes as we're following after God, sin can seem pleasurable. And here's the thing. Sin is pleasurable for a moment. It's pleasurable for a moment, but in the end, it costs us. And sometimes God gives us exactly what we want so that we would realize we don't really want it. What we really want is Him. Following after God can be difficult, but it's only difficult for a moment. And when we follow after God and put to death our, the desires of the flesh, we do it because we believe in Christ. We are not seeking immediate gratification. We're not doing it for the moment. We're doing it because we have this deep-seated conviction that the ways of Christ are better than the ways of sin. And so we follow after Christ because we trust in him, even if Christ takes us down difficult roads. Jeff Mannion, in his book, The Land Between, says this, I've heard that it's said that bad movement pushes out good movement, and good movement pushes out bad movement. We can discourage complaints, residency in our lives by inviting another guest to move in with us. The new guest is trust. When we choose to trust in the face of deep disappointment, complaint, ha complaint has less space to maneuver. While attempting to unpack for an extended stay, it discovers that trust has taken all the drawers in the guest room and already occupies the empty seat at the table. Trust evicts complaint. Trust and complaint are incompatible roommates. One inevitably pushes the other one out. So that's the first question, the question of the lost. Why would I want to follow God if God is going to take me to fill in the bank, blank? And God's answer is judgment for those who are apart from him and discipline for those who are believers to show us that we really do want to follow after Christ, to show us that the ways of Christ are better. The second question that a passage answers is the question of the faithful, and that is, why am I alone? Moses is frustrated with the behavior of the people, and he has this, this mix of kind of anger and despair as he cries out to God, I'm not able to carry all this people alone. The burden is too heavy for me. If you'll treat me like this, kill me at once. If I find favor in your sight, that I may not see my wretchedness. I mean, Moses is sort of being a little bit dramatic here. It's like, God, if, if you don't change this, just put me to death. Just kill me. But I can kind of understand what Moses is experiencing. He's like, he's following after God. He wants to lead the people to the promised land. He's trying to do the right things. And all the people just say is, we want meat. We want meat. And they're weeping and crying. They're just going crazy because they want meat. Moses has probably gotten to a point where he's like, I, I just can't take the complaining anymore. I just can't handle it anymore. I can't do this on my own. 
And Jesus or God responds to Moses in two ways, but in both of those, he reminds Moses that he's never alone. God's answer to this question is a reminder that we're never alone. The first thing he reminds Moses is that his strength is always sufficient. See, Moses asks the question, how will I provide for all these people? I mean, there's this multitude of people. How will I provide meat for all of these people? And God's answer is, you don't have to. You don't have to provide meat for all these people. I can provide meat for all these people. I can do what you could only even, can't even imagine. And again, even after God reveals that to him, Moses is like, there's so many people. How is this going to happen? And God's like, I'm going to bring this about. And so first God shows Moses, you're not alone. You don't have to lead this people alone. I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to be there for you. I'm going to give this people what they need. And then secondly, he provides Moses with community. He provides them, him with other people. He calls for other elders and rulers to be brought forth so that he wouldn't have to bear this burden alone. See, during times of great trial, God's people often feel like they're alone. I think as believers living in the culture that we do, I think many of us are starting to feel alone. 2020, uh, Gallup did a poll of people who said they belonged, to, how many people belonged to a church. And for the first time in its history, about 80 years that they had been polling on this topic, for the first time it dipped below 50% in the United States to 47%. You know, and that's not even people who, you know, belong to, a, you know, a Bible-believing, gospel-believing church. It's just anyone who said they're a part of a church, might not even attend, might not even be serious about their faith. 47%, and what's remarkable about that is the, de you know, the decrease that we've seen even in the last 20 years, where that number has decreased by 20%. I mean... Up to 1999, the number was more or less steady, went a little bit up, a little bit down. But from 1999 to 2020, it went from about 70% who would answer that question, yeah, I'm a part of a church, to 47% in 2020. Increasingly, as believers, it feels like we're in the minority. It feels like we're alone. We might feel alone in our workplaces, in our, in our families, as we're moving to, this, to being a post-Christian uh, nation. We may feel alone as we believe in a book that's thousands of years old, holding to convic convictions that seem silly to the world. And yet each time someone questioned being alone, each time in the scriptures someone said, oh, I'm the only one, I'm all alone, God gives his people reminders you're not alone. There's other people who are going to support you. I have a community, a remnant, so to speak, who are always going to uh, be with you. And God gives, those, those, gives us those reminders that we're not alone through community. And what also happens is through community, uh, God uses community to point us in the direction of trust. You know, we have these two questions, the question of the lost why would I follow God if God is going to lead me to fill in the blank? And the community of faith helps us with that question too. 
The community of faith, the church, helps us to follow after Christ even when it's difficult. Helps us to trust in the promises of Christ rather than in the desires of our flesh. The book of Hebrews, chapter 3, verses 7 to 13, says this. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw uh, my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I have sworn in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, my brothers, lest there be in any of you an unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So God gives us these reminders that you're not alone. You have other people to do life with, other people to encourage you to follow after me. A few years ago, in a drizzly afternoon in Washington, D.C., a group of people got together and formed a new group called the Quitters Club. The Quitters Club, their tagline was, let's give up on our dreams, dot, 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 together. One, one attendee was ready to cast aside her lifelong ambition to be an actor or, or actress. Uh, one person was ready to cast aside her dream to be a writer. One person was just kind of done with the Washington, D.C. scene, and they're ready to, to get up and, and move out of Washington, D.C. And so they all came with different things they wanted to quit. The uh, founder uh, named Josh Cannon he started the group because this is something that was personal, Justin Cannon, I should say. Uh, he started the group because he, there were a number of things in his life where he just kind of tried and not really been good at them, and he, he had trouble giving them up, and so he had this idea, let's start this group where we can help each other quit. He said, I was like, we should have a group where people want to give up on their dreams. First, he was making a, a joke. But somebody told him, you know, that's a really good idea. And so a few days later, he took action, posted a note on Meetup for this new group. He thought it might only be him, but within 48 hours, 35 people signed up. And so they had this meeting, and everybody came together, and they shared the things they wanted to quit in life. What was ironic about this is as they shared their dreams, the group encouraged them to keep going. To the actress who was tempted to give up, they said, well, you should probably give it another year before you give up. To the writer that wanted to give up her writing, they said, well, maybe you should carve out a little bit of time out of your schedule to devote yourself to writing to see if you're good at it. To the person who was ready to leave Washington, D.C., they said, well, why don't you try to find a job first before you just check out? And this group that was formed for the purpose of quitting somehow ironically turned, out, turned into this group where they were encouraging each other to keep going. And I think sometimes that happens with us in the body of Christ. We come to the body of Christ and we're ready to give up. We're ready to throw in the towel. We're ready to follow after the desires of our flesh and then we come together in the community of faith and the people around us encourage us to keep going. Don't give up. Don't give in. The way of Christ is better. We need each other. I was watching a television show the other day, and there was these three guys that were being ambushed by you know, these, these armies. 
And what they did, what I thought was interesting, they just kind of stood back to back to back, kind of in a triangle, each looking a different direction. And that way they could see all around them where the enemy was coming from. If they were by themselves, if they went out by themselves, they're in danger because someone could come up behind them, take them out. But together they could see all around them. They could fire their weapons uh, from any direction. And they needed each other. And I think in the world that we're living in today, we all need each other. We can't afford to do life on our own. Here's the main idea for today. God's people are to encourage one another to trust the promises of God. That's the answer to the first question. We're to encourage each other to keep going even in the midst of difficulties. And we're to remind each other that we're not alone. That's what the church is all about. Encouraging each other to trust the promises of God. Reminding each other we're not alone. The book called Remembering, written by Wendell Berry, and it tells the story of a Kentucky farmer named uh, Andy Catlett. And it was a warm summer evening, and Andy and a group of neighbors were helping a young farmer, corn farmer, to harvest his crops. And Andy was working the corn harvesting machine, and uh, it happened that that machine became jammed, and he stuck his hand in there kind of foolishly to try to get it unjammed. And his hand got sucked in there and just completely destroyed. So much so that he couldn't do the things that he once did. He could no longer farm like he once did. He got home, and his wife said, what did you do to yourself? He said, I've ruined my hand. He was plagued by this mistake that he had made. How could he be so foolish to stick his hand into this corn harvester? And now he felt like he was defective. He couldn't be the farmer that he once was, and he didn't want to talk to anyone about it. Finally, he decided he was going to confide in another farmer. The farmer's name was Danny Branch. Barry's novel describes their relationship this way. It says they learned how to work together. The one-handed old man and the two-handed, they know, they know as one what the next move needs to be. They are not swift, but they don't fumble. Between us, says Danny Branch, we've got three hands. Everyone needs at least three. Nobody ever needed more. See, apart from Christ, apart from the community of faith, we don't have what it takes to fight off the schemes of the enemy. Remember when Jesus was talking to Peter? He, say, he tells Peter, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Won't prevail against the church. Notice what Jesus doesn't say. He doesn't say, the gates of hell will not prevail against you. He says, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. The enemy can take one of us out, lickety split. But he can't take all of us out together. And that's why God gives us the body of Christ. To encourage one another to keep going. Don't give up. Don't give in to the promises of sin. And to remind each other, we're not alone. We can do this. We can do it together. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your provision. We thank you for giving us each other to encourage, us, to encourage each other. When we're at the end of our rope, when we're ready to give up, when we're ready to throw in the towel, when it seems like following you isn't worth it, 
We thank you that there's others around us that are there to encourage us and strengthen us and say, we can keep going. We can do this. Following Christ is better. We thank you for that, Lord. We thank you that in all times and in all places, you preserve a remnant of people who you've reserved for yourself, a people, a community of faith to carry out your mission in the world. Lord, I pray that as people we would trust in you even in the midst of difficulty and that we would stay together. We live in such a difficult time. We know that we can't do this alone. We can't do it without your spirit, without your provision. But we also know we can't do it without each other. Lord, give us the strength to follow after you with all of our hearts, to trust in you even in the midst of difficulty and to stay together, to stay unified, even in the face of adversity. In Christ's name I pray.